that image of Ezra, you know, laying the foundation stone after Israel had been totally decimated and they're finally they're back in the promised land and then they gather together and they worship and sing because they think of the future that they have now as a nation with God's presence dwelling within them. Uh, and what actually happens after that is the elders who used to know Israel before the temple had been destroyed, actually all weep. And so you have the crying and the weeping of the people who are lamenting what has been lost and the young new generation excited about what is going forward. It's just a really interesting picture. And it kind of marks a little bit of what today is like. We sort of lament. It's, there's a, a sense of sadness. We've left our, we've left our home. Uh, but then there's also this cry of like joy, like we've got a new one. And so we kind of find ourselves right in that Ezra 3.10 paradox of like joy and sorrow. Um, but as we look ahead, this new foundation is being built and we look forward. And right now we even have the presence of God meeting with us right here. Just as much presence of God is in this room as is in Murunga when there's four times as many people. Uh, and we've got to believe that. That's a truth. Uh, and that's for us to enjoy. Uh, and that's for us to live off. And so as we come to the reading of his word, um, as the first preach word in this church, let's open our hearts, quieten our souls, and ready our minds to hear from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 20. Now... When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Almighty God, would you please bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you came to me and had a request, say um, you wanted to build a cubby house for your kids and you had a nice tree in the backyard and you're really excited, you say, I need someone in the church to help me build a cubby house for my kids that's safe and sturdy, what would your reaction be if I volunteered and said, I'll build it, I'll build it for you? Now, if you know me well enough, you know that I'm not even qualified to build Lego, let alone a cubby house for your kids. Or say you've got a party coming up and you really want an incredibly beautiful cake and you're hoping that by coming to me and saying, I need a cake for my party, that perhaps someone else in my family might offer, someone like Maddie might offer, but in fact I respond to you and say, I will bake your cake for you. What would your response be? <laughs> uh, you wouldn't be full of much confidence 
expectation or hope. Or say you were looking for a new church in Parramatta and you said, I need a new church in Parramatta. And I said, I will plant a church for you. What should your confidence level be? The reality is the level of our confidence, our hope and our expectation for a project is based upon the person who is completing it, the person who is doing the work. So if Adam said to you, I'll build a cubby house, you'd be like, awesome, fantastic, I'll give you lunch and you can do the rest. If, if Maddie said, I'll bake a cake, you'll sit back and be like, fantastic, cake will be made and it'll be better than I can imagine. But when it comes to building of a church, who does the work? Who's... Who's doing it? Is it us? Obviously, we know from that text that it's not us who builds this church. We can come up with all the great strategies, all the great plans. We can have the world's best coffee. We can have a great kids' work, incredible signage, a great promotions on Facebook and Instagram. We can ha- even have good preaching and oratory and music. But ultimately, our confidence does not lie in those strategies, in those designs, and in those plans. It lies in someone else. It lies in Jesus. And so as we come to the the building and planting of this local church, I've chosen this text this morning because this text is going to fill us with unshakable confidence. Because the plans and the purposes that we have for this church are backed on a good person, and it ain't me. (laughs) It's Jesus Christ. So it's a very, um, we're actually going to read a little bit more than what I shared with you today, but we have three simple points. Point number one, his promises. Point number two, his plan. And point number three, our calling. All from this incredibly important text in Matthew 16. But there's one main point, one main hope that I want us to digest and take and breathe in for today and to take it with us for all the days of our church plant, and it's this. Because he will build his church, we can labor with unshakable confidence. Point number one, his promise. This section of scripture comes at the turning point of Matthew's gospel. So Matthew has been painting this picture of Jesus as this incredible teacher and this incredible worker of miracles. Wherever he goes, he speaks, and people are astounded by his teaching. And wherever he goes and he um, works, there are incredible miracles that happen. Demons are cast out, deaf people hear, blind people see, paralyzed people walk, incredible things happen. And wherever Jesus goes, there's a swell of crowds joining in. People that love him, people that hate him, people that are just curious. And it's not entirely sure what everyone makes of him up until this point. But where we get to Matthew 16, everything turns when we have Peter's confession of who Jesus really is. In fact, the whole gospel turns at this point. Matthew 16, there's lots of, lots of things happening, and then everything shifts towards Jerusalem after this point. So let's zone in in the text a little bit, because this identification of who Jesus is is incredibly important to our building of the church and his promises that he's going to make. So let's read Matthew 13, uh, 16, 13 again. So when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so that's far north, there's no Jewish people around, this is just him and the disciples, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he's opinion poll, census, what's going on, what do people think? Verse 14, and they said, look, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You know, there's lots of different ideas and attitudes going around about Jesus at that time, just like there is today. If you went down to Parramatta and said, who is Jesus? And you asked a Hindu, they'd say, he's God. A God. Not the God, but a God. You ask a Muslim and they say, he's a great prophet. The second greatest prophet after Muhammad. In, in, in Jesus' time, there was many different opinions as well. They, they couldn't quite figure out who it was. But then Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, and he, he gets it. He doesn't often get it right, Simon, but he gets it right this time. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In that title is a whole Old Testament worth of expectation and promise. You see, Jesus says, who does the Son of Man say that, or who do the people say that the Son of Man is? That title, Son of Man, refers to, in Daniel chapter 7, the the one who stands before uh, the throne of God, the Ancient of Days, the one who is given everlasting rule and reign. And Jesus is already applying that to himself. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And then Peter replies, you are the Christ. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You couldn't have a higher exaltation of Jesus in this moment. You couldn't have a more clear revelation of who he truly is. What were they thinking uh, when they hear the word Messiah? For us, you know, it's not a word that we use in common language. We don't think if someone said to you, I'm the Messiah, you'd think, okay, Mariah, is that your name? I, I didn't quite get it. But for them to hear the word Messiah, that would strike something in their very heart. It would be like maybe, maybe in America, someone, a, a loved politician saying, I'm going to run for president. They'd be like, oh, you for president? You are going to be the executive of our nation? It would inspire that kind of hope. If you love that type of person, because they were waiting for someone to come. They were waiting for someone to come and liberate Israel. They were under Roman oppression, Roman subjugation, Roman cruelty. They were paying taxes to Rome. Even their, their temple was built by this mixed person, Herod. And so they, they weren't in their own land as their own people with their own king. Caesar was their king. And there's all these Old Testament promises that a Messiah would come and that the people of God would reign in the land again, that no one would take them over, that in fact that they would rule forever and ever and ever. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, and he's speaking on behalf of the disciples, they're making a very bold statement. In fact, you can kind of get a picture of it if you go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. It conjures up all these different images, but here is one. I'll read it. I'm going to read it from the big Bible here. This is speaking of this promised Messiah. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Perhaps that's what they had in their mind. They're thinking, Jesus, you have come. 
you are going to give us the kingdom of God here in Israel again. That's why later on in the text we're going to see Peter thinks that Jesus is really going to put a crown on his head and be anointed and have an army and take over Israel. But what does Jesus think that this term means? Because who he is is um, linked to his mission and his purpose. If you misdefine what Messiah means, you misdefine what his actual plan and purpose and attack is. So let's look at what Jesus actually says it means to be the Messiah. The disciples have got all these ideas. We might have all these ideas about what we want Jesus to do in our lives. What does Jesus think the Messiah has come to do? Verse 18. And I tell you. That's Jesus' way of saying, all right, now it's my turn. You've said what the crowds have said. You've said what you think I am. Now I tell you. I am the Messiah, and this is what I've come to do. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What has the Messiah come to do? What has this Messiah come to do? Build his church. What has the whole Old Testament actually been building up towards? The building of his church, the gathering of his people, and the protection of those people. And so in this, Jesus defines what his identity actually means for the purpose of his kingdom and his reign. Because he is Messiah, he will build his church. Because he is Messiah, he will protect his people. And in this, we have two promises from Jesus. And we're going to look at them one after the other. Promise number one, he promises to build his church. When Jesus says, I will build my church, what he's actually doing is he's, he's, he's conjuring up the image um, that we've been looking at in the Exodus series in Israel. The first time that the people of Israel is called a church, which is the Greek word ekklesia or gathering, um, is in the Old Testament. If you translate the, the Old Testament version of gathering, um, the Hebrew word into Greek, you get the word church, and that's how they use it. And so when God gathered his people out of Israel through the Exodus and gathered them to himself, he called them a church, the gathering of God, the people of God. And so when Jesus actually says, I will build my church, he's pulling on this massive Old Testament image of the Israelites free from Exodus, now ready to serve and love their God. Imagine Israel at the, the foot of Mount Sinai, the gathering of the million Israelites there. That was the beginning, really, of the Israelite church, the Israelite gathering. And so now Jesus comes along and he says, I will build my church. I will build my gathering. Not just the people of God, but my people. My very own gathering. It's a remarkable, remarkable statement. You see, the disciples had all these ideas about what a Messiah would be and do. But Jeff Perswell says it like this, to be a Messiah was not just to conquer enemies. To be a Messiah was not just to rule nations. To be a Messiah was to have a people. Yes, Jesus came to die in the place of sinners and liberate us from death, Satan, and our own sin. But the point of all of that is to gather us into his very own people. 
In fact, that's what God's been doing since the beginning of the world, gathering a people to bless and dwell with that they may enjoy his presence forevermore. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church, that's not a separate statement to you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Because he is the Christ, he will build his church. Because he is the Messiah, he will gather his people. A Messiah must have a people. And that's why Jesus makes this bold and incredible promise. We see this continued throughout the rest of the New Testament. The church is not this sideline issue. It's not like me and Jesus, and then we've got church as this separate line that's an optional extra that we add on. So intrinsic is to Jesus' mission is the building of his church that we see that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. Luke records it like this in Acts 1.1. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So his first book is the book of Luke, and you have the whole story of the gospel. And then he says in the book of Acts, which is the story of the church, in my first book, I tell you all that Jesus began to do. And then the building of the church is what he continues to do. So the church is not an afterthought. What we're doing here today is not like something we've invented, something that we're like, it'd be nice if we could gather. No, this is the very purpose for which the Messiah came. Again, Jeff Perswell says it like this. Building his church is what he came to do. The church is no afterthought. The church is no appendage to the purposes of God. The church is intrinsic to the purposes of God. The church is no add-on to Jesus' mission. The church is central to Jesus' mission. He came to rescue a people. He suffered and died and rose again to build his assembly. And so as we gather as this church, we are directly aligned with the will of the Messiah who came and died in our place. This is what he came to do. You see Peter, the rock on which the church is built, that's not, he's not the Pope. All Jesus is saying is you will have a foundational role in the beginning of the church. You are Peter and on this rock I'll build the church. So what does Peter do on the day of Pentecost? He gets up, preaches the gospel, and they say, what shall we do to be saved? He says, repent and believe and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And then what do they do? They gather as communities. They break bread together. They eat the Lord's Supper. And then every time in the book of Acts, the word of the gospel goes out, the message of the Messiah goes out, what happens? They gather into little local churches and they break bread together and they worship and they get baptized and then they go again and then they go again and they go again and they go again and you see a line of churches all the way up, all the way up until Rome. Church, 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 church. Gathering, 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 gathering. Messianic community, messianic community, messianic community all the way through. For Jesus to be the Messiah is to build his people. All the way from Jerusalem to Rome to Parramatta, <laughs> 2,000 years later, that's what he's been doing. And that's his promise. He promised with his very own authority and identity, I will build my church. Notice that he's the one doing it. He's the builder. I will build it. Notice he promises, I will build it, future tense. It's going to happen. And notice that it's my church. This is not our church. <laughs> In a sense, it's his church, and we get to be a part of it. 
So that's the first promise that he makes in, um, in this little section. I will build my church. The second promise he makes is that he promises to protect his church. Read the rest of verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This second promise should fill us with utmost courage and confidence and also make us a little bit afraid. Because why else would Jesus need to give a promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against our church unless the gates of hell are going to come and try and take our church? Um, You may have wondered, what what do these words mean? What does gates of hell mean? Basically, it can have, I mean, apparently there's about 12 different ways this is interpreted, and it's one of the most you know, contentious issues of the Bible, but we proceed with confidence. Uh, There's two real ways that you can look at it. The gates of hell is the holding place of the dead. And what Jesus is likely saying here is, death cannot stop my church being built. Jesus will die and actually bring birth to the church. Stephen will die and the church will spread and go forth. Jesus' brother James will die and the church will go and martyr after martyr after martyr will die in the name of Jesus and the church will grow and strengthen and multiply all over the world. And the Messiah who saves his people, even though those people may die, they will live forevermore. Death will not prevail against church. His gathering cannot be stopped. But secondly, around this time, that the idea of the gates of hell came to mean like the demonic forces and spiritual powers. And so this word prevail is actually sort of an active sense, like it's not passive. The the, the demonic and spiritual realm is coming against Jesus' church. So buckle up. But he promises it will not prevail. Satan cannot conquer. Even if this building shuts down in three years' time and we don't get to meet here and the church disbands, the church is indestructible because the church is the bought blood, you know, souls of um, his people that are gathered together for all of eternity. It's like uh, you buy a boat or you rent a boat for the day and the person renting it to you says, she won't sink. You're like, oh, <laughs> well, I-, I wasn't expecting her to sink. Why did you promise that she wouldn't sink? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, I'm going to build my church, and not even hell and Satan could destroy it. And you're like, oh, okay, thanks. That, that's good. Uh, and, but it does fill us with incredible confidence. So what are the implications of these two promises, that he will build his church and that he will protect his people? Well, I think one main implication. We can plant this church with utmost confidence and expectation because nothing can thwart the purposes of of God. We can build this church. We can partner and labor for the building of this church with utmost confidence because he will build his church and he will protect his church, his bride, his gathering. Jeff Perswell again says it like this, there is no pronouncement in scripture that I know of that pulses with greater resolve or greater certainty than this one. I will build my church. It pulses with his authority, his messianic authority. It's mine. I died for her. I will build my church. 
and nothing will come against it. And that means that we can have a certain poise, ballast, and strength as a young church. We go out in the promise of Jesus Christ, the risen and resurrected Savior. We can have utmost confidence. Even if our plans don't work, He is still building His church no matter what happens. We can't fail. We can't be thwarted. And so we don't need to carry the weight and burden of expectation. We can just do this joyfully because our God is for us. That's point number one. His promises. We stand on His promises as a church. But how will Jesus accomplish this? That's point number two. His plan. Let's read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, so from that moment that Peter has declared, you are the Christ, and he's promised I will build my church, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. How is Jesus going to build his church? What's his plan? His plan of attack for building an indestructible church is through laying down his own life. It's through his substitutionary sacrifice in our place for the sake of the church. That's his plan. Death cannot conquer the church because death gives birth to the church. And there's no other way. There's no other way the church can be built other than through Jesus Christ going and setting his face toward Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be rejected. And he must die. Why? Because the church he wants to build, the people he wants to gather, are sinful, rebellious people like you and me. You see, the reason why Jesus had to die to build his church is because the church is full of you and me. (laughs) And we're rebels and we've come against him and we've sinned. That's the only way it goes forward is through, the only way he can purchase us is by giving his life away. And this goes against our instincts. We don't want to admit this, that the only way, you know, the church can go forward is because we are so bad that Jesus had to die. The only way this church can go forward is if we continually proclaim that he is the killed Messiah. In fact, you can see that the disciples didn't really want this to be the story. They wanted, you know, the Christ without a cross. They wanted the kingdom without the slain king. You see in Peter, in in verse 22 and 23, he says this, And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Not your best moment, (laughs) taking the Messiah aside, And saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. (laughs) Peter, you were doing so well. (laughs) Just You got your points. Keep your mouth quiet. But the great thing about including this here is that it kind of can reflect us a bit too. He was full of human thought, human cunning, human planning. 
He wanted the Messiah to come and rule, and he had his sights set on Jerusalem. Peter didn't even have this global vision of what God would do. He didn't have this eternal vision of what God could do through suffering. He didn't see all the links in the Old Testament about what Jesus could do. And so his plan was, Jesus, you come, you conquer, I'll sit on the right maybe, and we'll do this thing together, it's going to be epic. He had his mindset on the things of man. And we can, uh, I think, uh, for me personally, I can get caught up in this. I get stressed and anxious about having the right strategy, getting the right coffee beans, getting the right design or promotions, the right music, uh, the right people in the right spot, getting you know, all the rosters organized. And I hope that if we do all these things, the result will be success and influence and power. That's what Peter wanted. But that was a hindrance to the plan of God. What if God told us, you must plant Parramatta Church. You must invest the next three years of your life, tithe, give, serve, everything, but it will fail. It will shut down in three years' time, but I want you to serve like it will last forever. Who'd be in on that? (laughs) You see, I think like it was really hard for the disciples in that moment when Jesus was talking about dying. It, It didn't fit with their plan. They thought he was Messiah coming to take over Israel. They had this grand vision. We have a grand vision of what God might do through the planning of this church. But our ways are not his ways, and our plans are not his plans. And he is the one that builds the church, and we are along for the ride. The implication of this is that we can plant this church with utmost humility and dependence. We build it with humility because this church is being built by a Savior who had to die for us. It's not in us. That's why we sang, not in me today. Because it's not in me, it's not in you to build and plant this church. In fact, it's despite of us that he does it. And we build this church with utter dependence upon him. Because left to our own ways, we'd mess it up like Peter. We'd do our own human thinking. We'd, we'd stress and we'd make it all about us and our fame and our influence and our name and not about his glory. Jeff Perswell again, says it like this. It is, I will build, not you will build. Not pastors, not strategic thinkers. I will build my church. Our hope for our churches is never our efforts, our leadership, or our wisdom. Meditate on this verse, and weight should be lifted from our shoulders. Christ is the church builder. And this frees us from the burden. We don't have to come up with human cunning and planning Because if we did, it wouldn't work. He will build his church, Parramatta, and we get to go along for the ride. Because he's building his church, we can labor with unshakable confidence. So we have his promises. We have his plan. It's the way of the cross. So what's our role? What do we do in all of this? Well, point three, our calling, and we continue in our text to verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You see, Jesus goes before us and dies in our place for our sin. And then he says, come and follow me. What's our role in the building and establishing of Sovereign Grace Church Parramatta? To take up our cross and follow him. We go in the pattern of our rabbi and our teacher. A servant is not greater than his master. We're slaves of Christ. And so our calling and our responsibility and our opportunity is to lay down our lives and follow him. It means giving up our time, our treasure, our talents, some of our hopes, our dreams, our very lives perhaps. It means opening our doors, our wallets and our hearts. It means saying no to ourselves and yes to others. This is our calling. This is his plan. He lays down his life and then we follow in suit. And his church is built. That's the strategy. There's no other way. However, even in the dying to self, there is great gain. You see the logic of which Jesus says, um, look again. He says, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John Piper says this, Biblical self-denial means deny yourselves lesser joys so that you don't lose the big ones. Which is the same way as saying, really pursue joy. Don't settle for anything less than full and lasting joy. The great paradox of the Christian life is that as we lose our life, we find it. As we give away our time, treasure, and talents, we gain new ones. As we sacrifice, we're rewarded. That's the pattern. And so Sovereign Grace Church, as we go out, his method, his plan is that we should lose ourselves and find them again. And that as we do it, we will receive a great and abiding joy that can never be taken from us. Church planting will kill you and save your life. Church planning will rob you and make you richer than ever. Church planning will enslave you and make you more free. Brothers and sisters, it's going to be hard. It's going to cost you time, money, energy, heartbreak, pain, missed opportunities perhaps. But it will be worth it. Because whoever loses his life will find it. Brothers and sisters, because he is building his church, we can labor with unshakable confidence. Do you truly believe his promise this morning? Do you truly believe that he is building his church? Is that your motto and mantra of your heart? Do you truly believe that he will protect us from the gates of hell and it will not prevail. And if you do, there should be a, a lightness off your shoulders 
There should be a burden off your shoulders and a lightness. Yes, we sacrifice, we run with all of his energy, but we're also looking to him going, it's up to you, you've got to do it. It's that balance and that paradox. Do you truly trust his plan, the way of the cross? And are you prepared to follow him on this journey? Are you prepared to lay down your life in the pattern and the way of your Savior and King? What an adventure we have before us. What an opportunity. What a privilege. Because he is building his church. We can labor with unshakable confidence. He will do it, and he will get the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you have gathered us, equipped us, trained us for such a time as this. We thank you that we stand humbly dependent upon you. Lord Jesus, build your church. Lord Jesus, we lay it down before you. May you make your name great and famous. And may we fade into obscurity. Lord, I pray and ask that you would give us the grace to take up our cross and follow you. We thank you that you've promised these things to us. We thank you that you've provided yourself. Give us the grace to follow you and give us the confidence to trust in you no matter what happens. We lay this completely into your hands and ask that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.